0: Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Kat Arney, Dave Ansell and Mira I'm Chris Smith. Coming up, how unmanned aeroplanes could be about to join the healthcare delivery system.
1: So first of all, you take the plane, you fill it with the samples you want to take, it then flies over to the place where it's supposed to be, and then automatically drops the cargo onto the lab, and then the lab does the analysis and then SMSs you with the result.
0: We'll also be hearing how anti-spam systems born on the internet are now helping researchers to decode old documents and manuscripts.
2: And the team found that this method had an accuracy of more than 99%, and that's at least as good as a professional human transcriber.
0: And getting to the heart of a coronary, scientists have found a way to dramatically cut down the damage that's done by a heart attack.
3: The approach we took is to look at the number of agents that give the heart a preconditioning-like effect. And what we found is that we can reduce the damage by
0: 60%. Plus, in Namibia, there are plans afoot now for the world's tallest tower. But what does it do?
4: There's this proposal to build an absolutely massive solar tower. And it's going to be one of the first ones in the world. It's one and a half kilometres high. That's all on the way.
1: Now, if you live in a rural area, um, and you should know that everything's a long way apart, and especially in developing countries where roads are awful and it can take hours and hours to get even only maybe 10 or 15 miles. Now, this is bad enough in everyday life. But if you imagine the problem, if you're in a clinic... You want to get some tests back for a patient who might be dying. You need to know what those results are. It's going to take two or three days to get the results back. It's not going to be very good for the patient. Now, Barry Mendelow of the South African National Health Laboratory Service has a solution to this problem. Basically, spy planes. Not the big ones costing millions of pounds, um, but small, uncrewed aerial vehicles um, that have been developed for soldiers to be able to see over the next hill so they can work out who to shoot and who to, when to run away. Um, These are basically like radio controlled planes, but with a computer and a GPS system. So they're essentially autonomous and can fly a pre-programmed course over maybe about 50. kilometers at 45 kilometers an hour how big Report, are they dave um, these things here um depends on the sizes they've been building two two of them one some of them are sort of maybe um sort of about 80 centimeters wingspan Other, there's a bigger version with sort of a couple of meter wingspan and how are they controlled um, basically you plug them into a computer uh, i think they might even be able to program by a mobile phone um, you give them a set of gps coordinates that'll fly from one gps coordinate to another so first of all you take the plane you fill it with the samples you want to take um, you then Set it off, it then flies over to the place where it was supposed to be, and then automatically drops the cargo onto the cl- onto the lab. Then um, it flies back to you so you can catch it, and then the lab um, does the analysis, and then the SS- sms's you with the results. Quick question how How does it land safely though? Okay. Um, it depends on... They've got doing two versions. There's a big one which basically you have to get radio controls out to land fairly um, smoothly and gently. And there's a small version which is basically fly so, can fly so slowly that it can just basically land on a flatish piece of ground. And how much does it cost? Because I guess cost is a key question, isn't it? Um, these sort of things, uh, they vary in price quite a lot. Um, the military ones are sort of maybe £10,000. Um, but if you, if you made a lot of them, they could probably be down to about £1,000 if you did a lot of them.
0: So this is not something, although Africa... Would would like this it's maybe not something they can
1: afford possibly not start with until you start if you started mass producing them then you probably could but to start off with it would probably be rural areas in places with some money but not probably not none certainly a natty idea though
2: excellent yeah next anyone who's a regular web user will be familiar with the capture. Those are that that's the little box of really weird letters that you have to type out in order to get access to certain web pages. It's for security. Now, CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to tell computers and humans apart. And it's a really effective security measure because it means a computer system can tell if you're a real person or if you're a spam bot. You know, these programs that trawl the internet now researchers from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh have harnessed this technology for a rather unusual end and that's transcribing old texts from printed material into digital format it's the the big thing now trying to put lots of books texts manuscripts online in digital format so people can search them and, and see them and they've decided to use this capture system so using it the researchers have been asking computer users to decipher scanned words from books that can't be recognized by current computer to recognition systems and the team found that this method had an accuracy of more than 99% and that's at least as good as a professional human transcriber.
0: So well, they get lots of people to do it more than once um, to make sure they're it right? As far as
2: I know, yeah. So you, you'd get a little chunk of, of some letters and you just have to type them in. And currently the system is being used in more than 40,000 websites and it's been used to transcribe over 440 million words. So
0: it's a pretty clever solution, I think. How do they, how do they know that you've typed it in right if they can't actually read
1: it to start with? I think they generally have two sets of texts: one which they know what it's supposed to say, another one which they're not quite sure of. So you type, so you type it all in. You don't know which one's the real one, and then they know if you got half of it right, then you'll then you'll they'll let you in.
0: It's quite good, though, that we're turning something which is there to, to battle nefarious activities and turn it to a. A beneficial purpose isn't yeah. it it's quite neat
2: it's like those things at home where you can use your computing power to search for new drugs or, or do climate models That's or label
0: galaxies as spiral or non-spiral and sort of left hand and right hand forms a galaxy zoo which was a big hit last year doing something similar wasn't it cool talking of space science though uh very interesting this week scientists have actually sent not just bacteria into space which they've done in the past this they've actually managed to, to send animals into space expose them to the void of space and solar radiation and then recover them back to earth and, and They've been able to survive the process. This is a tiny organism called a tardigrade, which are about a millimetre long at most. They live in the soil.
2: They're water bears, aren't they? That's what they're called. If you ever see them, they do this really kind of little shuffly walk.
0: You can see them with a magnifying glass. If you go and get some soil from your garden and and shake the soil through a fine sieve, then you will get these tiny things. They're almost everywhere on earth. Turns out they're just amazingly harsh. They can stand, they're robust. They can stand very harsh conditions. Better than cockroaches. Um, Ingemar Johnson, who works at the Christianstad University in Sweden, has got a paper in this week's current biology where she and her colleagues teamed up with researchers at the European Space Agency ESA and they piggybacked if you like the Photon FOTON M3 mission put some of these tardigrades up into space and they had three sets of exposures so they had both the organisms and their eggs which were exposed either just to the vacuum of space for a period of time either to the vacuum of space and a low level of ultraviolet radiation so just the uva and uvb so that's the least fierce of the ultraviolet rays or a third group got the whole works they got full-on solar it's radiation nuking. yeah and and out of that they found that 100% survived exposure to the va- to the vacuum of space about 66% so two-thirds survived being exposed to a little bit of UV and the vacuum in space, and, and a handful actually survive the full-on action, which is amazing and the reason they're so excited about this is that these organisms obviously have the ability to repair their cells and their DNA very, very well, and why that's important is that we're always looking for ways to repair our DNA better, because things like cancer drugs which are chemotherapy work by ta- by targeting certain vulnerable sets of cells, the cancer, more than healthy tissue. So if you could protect the healthy tissue by using the same technique perhaps that these bugs do, this would make the cancer stand out as more vulnerable. You could give more radiation, killing the cancer more whilst getting around having any side effects. So it's a very interesting piece of work and, and will be interesting to try and work out how they are so resistant and resilient, even to space.
2: So maybe it'll be them that survived the nuclear explosion rather than the cockroaches.
1: Indeed. Now, you may have think there's lots of different kinds of beers. Now, one of the reasons why beers are different is to do with the kind of yeast used to grow them. And scientists at Yale University have been studying the family tree of these yeasts, um, the ones which are used to brew lagers. To do this, they've been studying DNA from the yeasts, um, which have been used to make fairly modern beers, and ones that have been preserved um, up to 130 years old. they discovered that there's two major families of these yeasts, the ones which are used to brew SARS beers such as Pilsner and Budweiser, and yeast used to make Frohberg um, beers such as Heineken and Orange Boom, Both families are thought to be the consequence of the Bavarian legal system. In the 15th century, it was made illegal to brew beer in the summer. Do we know why? Well, apparently, the beer that they were making at the time was always ruined by high temperatures you get in the summer, so there was no point in doing it, it would be a waste of um, grain making the beer, so it was made illegal. Um, so the brewing, all the brewing was done in very cold winters in Bavaria. Now, conventional brewing yeast, which is *S. cerevisiae*, thank you cerevisiae*, um, doesn't survive well in these temperatures. And the, um, but the yeasts which survive well don't produce much alcohol. Fortuitously, though, at some point in this period, the brewing yeast into bread with *S. banianus, and yes, uh, I'm sure Kat will help me at some point, um, which thrives at these low temperatures, but um, doesn't make much alcohol. Um, The SARS, in fact, it happened twice for the two different families. The SARS yeast is a normal hybrid of the two with with two sets of chromosomes, but the Froberg yeast is actually triploid with three sets of of chromosomes with two two sets of chromosomes from the brewer's yeast. Um, They found that neither strain had lost many of the genes to survive the low temperatures but um and but lots of them have got lots and lots of the genes you need to make good beer, lots of alcohol cut chopping up um things unfortunately this is probably going to it's going to be very hard to do any genetic ma- manipulation on these yeasts because they're infertile because they're a hybrid between two different species um but possibly in the future you might be able to use this um system of hybridizing two yeast to make some more interesting beers but
0: do they know why they decided to merge their genetic two, two different strains of yeast decided at some point if they could decide of course <laughs> to merge their genetic material like that
1: Well, I guess you've got two strong selection pressures if you're brewing yeast in the cold. One of them is, uh, brewing beer in the cold, one of them is to get a yeast which will survive the cold. And the other one is the people are going to be selecting the ones which make good beer. So there's going to be a really strong selection pressure that if they happen to cross, then that beer, that yeast is going to get selected really strongly.
2: And a slightly related story that's about diet. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but back in July, a team of Greek researchers working as part of EPIC, the largest study of diet and cancer ever undertaken, showed that the more Mediterranean a person's diet is, the lower their risk of cancer. Now, that means a diet that contains lots of fruit, veg, grains, nuts and fish, all the good stuff, a little splash of olive oil, but it's low in red and processed meat, low in alcohol and low in dairy and animal fats. Well now an analysis of 12 international studies of diet and disease published in the British Medical Journal has shown that a strict Mediterranean diet can actually help to reduce deaths from other diseases as well as cancer. That includes heart disease, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease as well. Now collectively these studies covered more than 1.5 million people whose diet and health were tracked for 3 to 18 years and this is something known as a meta-analysis, it's where they get all these big studies and kind of do all the number crunching to crunch them together and get some meaningful results and all the studies that were investigated used a score to work out how Mediterranean your diet was, so for example if you eat lots and lots of fruit and veg you you get a score, Uh, if you eat lots of grains you get a score, if you eat lots of processed meat you lose points. And the researchers found overall that people who stuck strictly to their Mediterranean diet had a 9% drop in overall death rates, including a 9% cut in deaths from heart disease. 13% 13% drop in the incidence of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and 6% cut in cancer incidence as well. And the researchers think that this could be quite effective for preventing cancer if you can kind of try and trick people in maybe to scoring their diets so try and get their points up on the Mediterranean score because that will be helping them to, to prevent cancer and, and these other diseases as well.
0: That's really interesting because what it shows is rather than it just being an observational thing these people in this part of the world who eat this diet seem to live longer, which could be for a variety of reasons. Actually, you're saying you can take any population, change their diet along the same lines, and they get a benefit, showing it's the diet that must be beneficial.
2: Well, it's the diet that's definitely beneficial. We still don't know much about people who dramatically change their habits Um, there's probably likely to be a benefit we know that that the healthier you eat the more fruit and veg you eat um, the more you stick to your ideal weight these are all beneficial thing about humans though is we tend not to really change our habits so the key thing is is to really sort of get grounded in good habits when you're younger
0: Also this week scientists have uncovered a chemical that might help to cut down the damage that's done by a heart attack and that's by recreating a condition called cardiac preconditioning. Doctors have known for some time that hearts that are chronically exposed to poor blood flow seem to develop a resistance to the disease and to the damaging effects of a heart attack but exactly how this is achieved wasn't known. But now Daria Moshley-Rosen from Stanford University has got to the bottom of it.
3: Well, it started with a quest to understand how the heart is managing to protect itself from damage if in a, a full-blown heart attack occurs. And quite a few researchers were trying to see if we can put it in a bottle, so to speak. And so uh, the approach we took is to look at a number of agents that uh, give the heart a preconditioning-like effect and see whether something in common can pop up. And what we found is that this enzyme... called aldehyde dehydrogenase is the one that changes more consistently with the amount of damage that there is in the heart after heart attack um or a model of heart attack so the the bigger the damage the lower the activity of the enzyme the smaller the damage the higher the activity of the enzyme
0: so is your theory then that what's going on in people who have long-standing heart disease the heart by being stressed makes more of this enzyme so that if someone then has a heart attack they're more protected whereas if someone has a heart attack out of the blue they have low levels of this enzyme and therefore the heart is more damaged
4: Actually,
3: what's interesting is it's not that the heart is making more of the enzyme, but it actually makes it a little bit more active. So it takes the same enzyme that it has all the time, but just makes it a little bit more active. And we were interested to understand how it, it happens, and we found the mechanism, but then we thought this is all a correlation that increasing the activity of the enzyme is really uh, correlating with decreased damage.
0: And how does the enzyme work, Daria?
3: It is getting rid of this what we call free radicals, these nasty things that accumulate in the organ when there is less oxygen and nutrients. Um, in fact, free radicals are accumulating in a variety of diseases and this enzyme is one of the important enzymes that get rid of those uh, very reactive uh, agents that accumulate in the organ during these ischemic events, these heart attack events.
0: And how are you managing to increase the levels of the enzyme in your experimental system?
3: Yeah, so so what we do is we do not increase the level of the enzyme, but we increase its activity. We we search for a small molecule that can enhance the activity of the enzyme by screening uh, hundreds of thousands of molecules uh, in a sensitive assay. And we found this uh, little molecule, little molecule being more or less the size of aspirin, that can increase the activity of the enzyme by about uh, twofold.
0: And this is in animals, presumably? That's absolutely just rats.
3: Yeah, nothing has been done in in animals other than rats. And it's important to point out that... um studies in rats uh, as much as encouraging they are they are not uh, really telling you unequivocally whether it will work in humans
0: it needs to be determined sure but it's a guide isn't it so you would put this molecule into the animal uh, or the human in the future and it would in some way increase the activity of their own aldehyde dehydrogenase enzyme this would protect the heart in the context of a heart attack so how much damage do you think you could prevent happening with this strategy
3: Yeah, in the rats, when we know exactly when the event will occur since we are inducing it, we can reduce the damage by 60%. In humans, as as you know, we unfortunately don't know when a patient will have a heart attack and um, how long the heart attack will be and so on. So it is difficult to determine how much protection you will have. But we are particularly encouraged uh, with this finding for users uh, in scenarios other than just heart attacks, for example, during bypass surgery, when, when there is a period uh, that is determined by the surgeon in which the oxygen and nutrients to the heart are reduced. Uh, we also think that it will be able to protect the brain, for example, during these periods of uh, low flow of blood to the, to the body.
0: Thank you very much, Daria. Thank you. Daria Moshley-Rosen. She's at Stanford and the research is published in this week's Science. Finally this week, to Namibia, where a looming energy crisis means that engineers are cooking up an electrifying solution. Here's Meera
5: Providing the cities and villages of Africa with a good supply of electricity has long been a challenge for African governments, with many of the smaller countries relying on larger ones to connect them to the grid. But a recent proposal approved by the government in Namibia could provide vast amounts of power from a natural, renewable source. With me this week is Christina Scott from the Science and Development Network to tell me more.
4: There's a proposal to build an absolutely massive solar energy tower outside the capital of Namibia, which is Windhoek. Historically, they've always gotten their electricity from their neighbours, only South Africa basically ran out of electricity, and it's having this terrible knock-on effect on all the neighbouring countries. The good side is that now there's a renewed interest in renewable energy, And there's this proposal to build an absolutely massive solar tower. And it's going to be one of the first ones in the world. It's one and a half kilometres high. I have trouble actually imagining how they're going to persuade planes to go around it. It's going to be so big.
5: That's extremely high, actually. And how wide is it going to be?
4: Well, basically, it's one very boring-looking chimney, straight up, straight down. But... At the base of it, there's going to be a transparent disk stretching for about, it might be about half a kilometer into the distance around, a bit like a donut. And the idea is that this will trap the solar energy and it will get funneled into the tower into wind turbines. At the same time, there's research that's been done here in South Africa at the University of Stellenbosch, which says that you can use that transparent disk to actually, at the same time, create really big greenhouses and do two things at the same time. What worries me is that there are no prototypes. We had one tower, which was a lot smaller in Spain, which was used as a test run. Between then and now, there's been almost nothing else. What's happening with this proposal is that they're arguing that because these things work so much better, the bigger they are, they want to go past the intermediary steps and build what will basically be the world's biggest man-made structure. So it would be incredibly expensive to build. On the other hand, it would be very, very inexpensive to run. And they're particularly good for areas that don't have a lot of water because of some solar power designs require water as a backup, and quite frankly, places like Namibia just don't have the water to be able to cope.
5: But at the same time, you've mentioned that it's going to be very expensive to build this tower. So, how much money are we looking at here?
4: Well, the pre feasibility report on its own is 780,000 US dollars. And there are other countries that are looking at it as well. So, presumably, the cost will come down if we get quite a lot of solar chimneys being built in countries like Australia. Egypt, India, Morocco. But right now, they're proposing something that's going to be 900 million US dollars to construct.
5: That's a lot of money. So is it actually worth this amount of money to go this way?
4: I think the Namibian government is interested because they are situated really well for using solar power and they are extremely vulnerable to what happens in their neighbouring countries. We've got electricity here in South Africa, but we're using it all ourselves. They want to become more independent. This is just one of the things that they're looking at. For example, Namibia has uranium, and rather than exporting it, they're now considering nuclear power as well because their economy won't expand without power. It is an issue across the continent.
5: Where are we currently with this situation? Is it going to be built soon or is it
4: just in discussions? What's the current position? Right now they're still in discussions. We interviewed the Permanent Secretary for the Ministry of Mines and Energy in Namibia and he says that they're basically prepared to work with serious investors. They're interested in this one because the um, solar towers, the power of Power, it can actually work at night, which they're quite interested in. It is going to provide 24-hour power then? It can provide 24-hour power and it can provide power at peak times, which is something that doesn't always happen with other versions of solar power. They had a study for a similar solar chimney in the Kalahari Desert on the South African side of the border, and that was dropped That was dropped because they considered that its power was too expensive compared with the coal power that South Africa relies on quite heavily. But given the fact that we've got global warming, it makes a lot of sense for countries that have a lot of sun to wean themselves off oil. I think we're going to find a lot more work going into these uh, solar towers in the future.
0: Christina Scott from the Science and Development Network talking to Mira Synthalingam. That's it for this week, and thank you very much for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash was produced this week by Ben Vousler and I'm Chris Smith. We'll be back with another roundup next week. Until then, goodbye. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.